0: Let's uh, bow together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and love and mercy towards us in sending your son Jesus, our Savior, in whom we praise. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use it to grow us into uh, the image of your son, Lord God. And Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would grant us understanding into exactly what you intended by your spirit through Nehemiah, so that we would respond rightly as you desire, so that you would be greatly glorified. Bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look around the church these days, uh, what I've seen, unfortunately, is that uh, leaders are a dime a dozen. You go to churches and they got so many leaders, they got so many people leading, uh, you find out lots of the people haven't even been there very long. It always grieves my heart when I'm looking at churches and I see that uh, the people that they appoint, or I hear about that, are people who are new or or haven't uh, been believers for very long. And you wonder, uh, do these people have the Bible? When they do this, are they looking at what God says concerning how to appoint leaders in the church? Because God has not left us unclear on how to do that. And we have many passages, as we'll briefly look at today in the New Testament, but we have one passage today in the book of Nehemiah, which is very helpful in helping us understand how God, through his people, appoint godly leaders for his work. And for us, that would be his work in the body of Christ. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah, so would you turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7? And you're probably looking at that long list of names, and you're thinking, is he going to be able to sell those? Well, I'm going to try, but I'm probably not going to get them right. But it's God's word, and uh, we need to look at it. We need to understand why it's there. Uh, But I believe we're going to see the main point, hopefully, today from what God intended us to see. Now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king, and uh, God put on his heart after hearing uh, about the walls being in shambles and the, the gates burned in Jerusalem. He's a cupbearer for the king of Persia, the super empire of that time. He hears from his brother uh, what's going on and that the, uh, the people are greatly distressed, and he is moved uh, to pray for uh, the people and pray for Jerusalem and that. And, and he is then within that time of praying, that four months, is, is drawn to see that he's the one that's going to go help. And he uh, trusts the Lord and asks for favor and for success. And he asks the king, in the context of his uh, being before him and being inquired upon, that he might go to Jerusalem, that he might be able to go rebuild uh, there. And he has granted that request, and he wisely asks for all the things that he needs to do that and we know he gets there and we saw throughout chapters 2 and well 3 is an overview of the building of the wall but uh, 2 and and uh, 4 through 6 we saw all the opposition that satan brought forth through mankind all the different ways and schemes that he opposed Nehemiah and the Jews that they would be discouraged that they would give up on the work But God was gracious and brought it to a completion, as we will be reminded today, in 52 days. He brought it to a completion, and we're at that point in Nehemiah where the physical work is done. But now there's spiritual work to be done. We're going to see the rest of the book is really about rebuilding the people spiritually that just like the walls that were in shambles, the people were in shambles, uh, the gates broken down spiritually speaking, and they needed to be restored, and we need to be restored and so we 're going to just s- jump into the beginning of that portion today. So again, turning your Bibles to Nehemiah, and we are looking at chapter uh, Nehemiah chapter seven, Nehemiah chapter seven. And today, I believe we're going to see that uh, Nehemiah wisely appoints leaders, and we can gain some principles from that today. And it's a springboard for what we will see in the context of Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to look at the whole chapter. But first of all, I want to remind you that chapters 1 through 6 are about the rebuilding of the physical wall. And there, certainly there were spiritual principles. We saw those. Uh, there were physical wall of Jerusalem and the gates, and it was in the context of great opposition. Great opposition. And as we're going to see today, chapters 7 to the end are going to focus on the spiritual rebuilding of the Jews through the conviction of the word, the confession of sin, and then a determination to obey. Conviction of the word, confession of sin, and determination to obey. Remember those things. And As we come to chapter 7, you might say, are we really going to read all those names? And yes, we are. And so I probably won't get them right, but uh, The Lord knows how they're pronounced, right? Um, But I believe we're going to see a bigger picture in the second half of this book of what's really going on. So today, we're going to see that Nehemiah, first of all, is concerned about establishing leadership in Jerusalem. Secondly, because the city is empty, they got the walls fixed, they got the, the doors fixed, because the city is empty. He is concerned about getting the people back to Jerusalem to live there, to be, to be uh, uh, populated, as we're going to say, by people who are following the Lord, by people who are following the Lord. And so then uh, we look, and you notice uh, uh, the city's empty. Look at verse 4, and we'll get to our passage and read through it, but look at verse 4 of chapter 7. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Uh, Then God put into my heart. See the context there, the the, the connection? Then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the peoples uh, to be enrolled by genealogies. So Nehemiah recognizes the city is spacious and large, but there are few there. Not many houses. So he is prompted by the Lord, as we will see, to enroll the people in genealogies. That's to see who's there. And are they connected to uh, the promises of the tribes that God gave the land? It's very connected to everything that God had done. And so it's very important. And so the implication is he's going to get assemble the people together. And in that context, uh, move towards populating Jerusalem, and you say, "Wow, well, how's that? How does he populate Jerusalem?" Well, verse four helps us understand that he sees that need. Then look at chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11 for a moment. See, we don't hear anything about Jerusalem being populated after this point, and then we get to chapter 11. Notice what we'll see. Nehemiah 11, verse 1, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast slots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in other cities. Now this doesn't happen until after their restoration spiritually, as we're going to see. And then after this, we're going to see there is a great... uh, 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 A great assembly for the dedication of the wall. But that's going to come after this. And and, and we're going to see there's also sin that needs to be dealt with there too. So back in our passage, um, I believe we have here a, a portion of scripture going up to chapter 11, which has to do with repopulating Jerusalem. But there's a problem. The people need to be restored and rebuilt just like the walls needed to. It's only then and only then that They're going to inhabit uh, Jerusalem. So then let's take a look at our passage. Verse 1, Now it came about when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Don't forget that. Isn't that great? Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Then, my God, put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies, then... I found the book of the genealogy of those who had come up first from which first in which I found the following account he found the word of god and we're going to see it is an exact copy from verses 6 to 9 from Ezra chapter 2 Ezra chapter 2 records the genealogies of those who first came out Of Babylon, it was some 71 years earlier that that uh, that uh, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple, and there was a group that left, and this is the numbers and genealogies of those who left, and so he finds this, so he's being prompted, as we'll see, to enroll in genealogy, and all of a sudden, then he finds this old genealogy, very interesting. Very interesting how God works. We're going to see that, that often God will prompt us, and then he will lead us through his word. He will lead us through his word. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read through a lot of this. Um, As I told you, again, it is exactly the same as Ezra 2 from 6 to 69, but then at the end there are some variations of the gifts that were given for the work, and we'll talk about that when we get to that, okay? But let me give this a try, and we'll go through this, and I'm going to go through fast. Uh, it really is a list of names and tribes, we'll see your names, and, and, uh, and then the numbers, okay? And so I'm going to go through it quickly. You might see some interesting things. You'll see singers, Levites, you'll see different groupings of people that are identified. Uh, you can just take a note of those things. you also see the umen and the thumen. You go, what is that? Well, we, no one really knows, but we'll talk about that a little bit, Okay. Uh, but this is not the main part of what we'll look at today, but we're going to go through it and read through it right now together. Verse 6, these are the people, here it is, this is the, this is the actual thing he found. This is the, the scripture that he found, okay? These are the people of the province who came up from captivity, the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and had returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city, who came with Zerubbabel, yes, Joshua, and uh, Nehemiah, it's not the same Nehemiah there by the way. It's a different Nehemiah. There was just like we have, hey, uh, there's a John, oh there's another John. Well, they had multiple Nehemiahs. So this isn't the Nehemiah that we're looking at, but uh Azariah, Raamiah, Nahamani, uh Mordecai, hey, we know him, right? Uh, right? Um Bilshan, uh Mishpareth, Bigvai, Bigvai, uh, uh Nehem and Baana the number of the men of the people, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now I'm, I'm going to just go through this and walk through these. Remember, these are who came in the first uh, return. Okay, the first return and the numbers: the sons of Perosh, two thousand one hundred seventy-two; the sons of Shephatiah, three seventy-two; the sons of Ara, six fifty-two; the sons of Pahath Moab; the sons of the sons of Jeshua and Joab two eight one eight the sons of Elam one two five four the sons of Azatu uh, eight forty five the sons of Zakai seven eighty the sons of Bin Binui eight six forty eight the sons of Bebai six twenty eight the sons of Asgad two twenty three twenty two the sons of Adachim. Adek- 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 Uh, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Adin, 655, the sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bazai, 324, the sons of Hareph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, uh, 188, the men of Anathoth, uh, 128, the men of Beth, Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kinath, uh, Jearim, uh, Sherifera and Bereroth, uh, 743. The men of Rama and Giba 621. The men of Mikmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of uh, the other Nebo, 52. The sons of other Elam, 1,254. The sons... Of Haram, three twenty. The son the men of Jericho, three forty five, the sons of Lot, Hadid and Ono, seven twenty-one, the sons of Sana'a, three thousand nine hundred and thirty. Uh, the priests, now we've got some different people, right? The priests, the sons of Jed Jedediah, the house of Yeshua, nine seventy-three, the sons of Immer one thousand fifty-two, the sons of Pashur, one thousand Two hundred forty-seven. The sons of Hiram. One thousand seventeen. The Levites. The sons of Yeshua of Kadmiel, The sons of ahod of uh, seventy-four. The singers. Singers of the sons of Asap. One forty-eight. The gatekeepers. Uh, the sons of Shalom. The sons of Atur, The sons of Talmud, The sons of Akub. The sons Akub. The sons of Hatiah. Hatiah. Uh, the sons. Of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Karas, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebana, the sons of Hagabah. how do you take a breath? All right. The sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah the sons of and the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Bessai, the sons of Mium, the sons of Nephushim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakupta, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazith, the sons of Mehar. The sons of Hansha, the sons of Barkos. there's a normal name, right? Okay, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Temah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Halapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sopherath, the sons of Pereida, the sons of Jaiah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shepelatiah. The sons of Hatil, Haltil, the sons of, of uh, Pach, i my glasses on here. The sons of Pachereth Hazabim, the sons of Ammin, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392, and these were they who came up from Telma, telharshat Cherib, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show their fathers' houses, their descendants, whether they were of Israel the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, not the same Tobiah from our thing. This is an old, this is 71 years earlier. The sons of Nakoda, 642, all the, and all the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzilla, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzilla Barzillai, uh, the, the Gadite, whose name was after them. These searched among their ancestral registry but could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them, that would be uh, Zerubbabel that time, uh, the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Uman and Thumen. Now there's very few things about the Uman and Thumen. It's said that these were, you look at the references uh, on the priest's garment of righteousness when they would make judgments, they had either two stones, Uman and Thumen, and basically it was some way that God used to determine very difficult situations. It's not, uh, not not uh, what what not, uh, um, what's that? It's like lots in a sense, but it was God's sovereign way of doing it. It was the uman and thumen. So um, there's not very much of that. We know that God in many ways, in many portions, spoke in the past, but now he speaks through his son. There was lots of things in the Old Testament that aren't right now. So I'm going to come back. Let's see here. Where's the uman and thuman? Uh, the whole assembly together was 42,360. That's how many people came who were Jews back to the land? Now that's out of about a few million. That's all that came back, and this was to rebuild the temple. So we build the temple. We see this in Ezra chapter two, and then he also talks about besides their male and female servants, whom were seven thousand three hundred thirty-seven. They had twenty-five, two forty-five male and female singers. Uh, that's like a boombox, but with a human boombox, right? They had their singers. You know, and uh, their houses, uh, their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6720, and I may have made some mistakes in the numbers there, but uh, the word is clear what it is, okay? And then at this point, that's what he found, Then there's a variance when you look between here, and I just struggled in my in my preparation, why the differences? Because God's word is perfect. God doesn't make errors. Why the difference? And there's some thoughts why. One is that the first account in, um, in, uh, in Ezra chapter 2 speaks of the gifts that were graciously given for the work of the rebuilding Temple from that group. It's said that these might be speaking of Nehemiah and what was given here at this time. It's quite possible that they were added into the book or added together with that. You see what I'm saying? Because it doesn't talk about the governor giving anything in the the, the Ezra, but it talks about the governor giving something here. So let's take a look at this real quick. And some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work. You know, uh, they had a heart to give to the work. Uh, I hope you have a heart to give to the work. You know, uh, they gave to the work. The governor, this is probably Nehemiah, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to say that's my thought. Uh, the governor gave the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas. Now, uh, there's another word for drachma. We'll see it later on. It's, that, it's a Persian coin, a daric, I think it is. Um, it was basically, uh, it basically was a month's worth of wages, about eight ounces of gold, or eight not eight, but eight uh, grams of gold, something like that. I don't, I don't know how many ounces it was. You can look it up, but uh, it was a lot of money. So think of giving a 1,000 months' wages. That's a, that's a significant gift, significant gift. These are big numbers. These are gracious, large gifts for the work of ministry. And that's a point that we'll see later on, that God moved people to, to help provide for the work of the ministry. And these are gracious, big gifts. Uh, the governor gave the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins. Those will be gold basins, by the way. 530 priests, garments. This is all for the ministry, all because they were coming in, right? And they were, they were revamping. We see it back in the first Nehemiah. We'd also see it here, but expanded in the numbers, also with the governor. And some of the heads of the father's households gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, or, or darks dar- 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 uh, and 2,200 2, silver minas, and th- and that which the rest of the people gave was two. Twenty thousand gold drachmas, and two thousand silver minas, and sixty-seven priest garments. The people gave a ton too. That's a lot. That's a lot. Now the priests for seventy-three, the Levites, the gatekeepers, of singers, and some of the people of the temple, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. Now Ezra ends at that statement. So it's thought that actually chapter eight starts at the second half of actually this verse right here. Uh, and when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. It transitions from how uh, the first of all, they were in their cities, but here now Israel is like this first group. They're in their cities. They're not fully established with Jerusalem yet. That's really what it's moving to point to, okay? So with that in mind, I uh, wanted to make sure we went through the word word for word and that the, 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 these uh, genealogies are pretty straightforward, not much teaching to be taught about it. But what we do understand is that God cares about people. And He knows your name. And He knows what you're doing. And here, He's recorded those who s- sacrificed their comfy lives, and they had comfy lives uh, in Babylon, and they left to serve the Lord. And they're named here, okay? Okay, so with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage back where we start again. And we're going to see how God, through Nehemiah, appointed some leadership, how He appointed some leadership. Uh, notice our verse 1. Now, it came about when the wall was rebuilt, right? All right, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, okay? And he's going to say, it came about when all this was done, then I did this. That's what he's going to say. And notice back in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Iul, in fifty two days. That's the sixth month of the Jewish calendar, that is five days before what we're gonna read here and what begins in chapter eight. We're gonna see in chapter eight, verse two, notice this, look at chapter eight, verse two. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all the crowd who could all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. That's five days after the completion of the wall. We're going to see that God moves the people in the context of Nehemiah's desire to bring them together. He moves them to come together. And he moves them to hear the word of God, as we're going to see, and to be convicted by the word of God. And it's great. By the way, just read through these chapters going on, and you read about even later on when he talks about their sin. And you see the sin of Israel. They confess their sin, but they confess the whole nine yards from when it started. You know, they go up through it, and you hear it one thing after another, a great summary of Israel's sin. But God's faithfulness, he never forsook them. He didn't forsake them, but he disciplined them as a nation, right? Uh, Very, very awesome. And so here we're reading a chapter, chapter 7, which is five days before chapter 8. Five days before chapter 8, and we're going to find out that chapter 8, they're going to realize, whoa, it's the time for the Feast of Booths. They're getting convicted, and they actually do it for the first time ever since Joshua. There's a change going on. There's conviction. There's a change going on with these people, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 8. So here, within five days after the the uh the walls formed, Nehemiah does, he appoints gatekeepers. Those are people that keep gates. They They're hanging out by the gate. They keep the gate, right? And then notice he says uh also um we have these uh this the um the levites and the singers he says here uh, the singers and the levites were appointed and that's a good principle for us uh the word and worship needs to be a priority the levites as we'll see in chapter eight eight and nine they were bringing forth the word also we're going to see that and the singers they were to sing and praise god they were to praise god the word and worship he appointed those got those appointed it's important, it's important, the worship and uh, the word of God. And so it's this from this point that he does something. Notice what it says, verse 2, that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. Walls done, time to appoint leaders of Jerusalem, right? And he does so. And we're going to see from this and have some principles that will help us from the Old Testament and how to appoint leaders in the New Testament, along with the New Testament passages. Okay. So, he's speaking of leadership in Jerusalem, they were put in charge. They were put in charge. Uh, Jerusalem's got walls, it's got gates, it's got. Now it has leadership, and we're going to see all it needs after that is people, right? It's going to need some people. Going to need some people, and that's going to come after their hearts are addressed with the word. Their hearts are dressed with the word. And we're going to see they will come. Okay, so here we have this. Now, it's important to look at this. We can gain some principles of leadership. These things are written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come, right? And so we're going to look at this. And notice, first of all, uh, he says, uh, we see that uh, he appoints uh, leadership here. And we know in the New Testament Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, Acts 6, Acts 20, we have passages that tell us about leadership. But here, this is going to go with it. I'm not going to teach those other passages today. I'm going to teach from Nehemiah, and we'll learn those principles and how they apply. But they flow right into what we see in the New Testament as we are in the church. Okay, so then, notice, first of all, I believe Nehemiah knew them well. He didn't appoint people he didn't know. He didn't appoint people that he did not know. First of all, he says that I put Hananiah, my brother. We're going to see he knows him, but there's some important things about that. And then he says Hanani, and then Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge. Uh, a little side principle these are not women, by the way. He's not appointing women in charge. Uh, God made man and, uh, men and women in his image. In Christ we are equal under the blood of the cross. But he has given us differing roles. We see in uh, in Genesis very clearly that it was not Adam that was deceived, but Eve was quite deceived. Adam rebelled. That's much worse, by the way. The fall is on Adam, not on Eve, by the way. The fall is on him. But if you look, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We see a New Testament principle, which Nehemiah, he's appointing men here. He's not appointing women. Uh, First Timothy chapter two, verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That's uh, pretty straightforward. If you're faithful, you'll want to obey the Lord, right? Um, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, some will say that's just cultural. Back in those days, the culture didn't allow it. No, it's not true. He uses an illustration that, that supersedes culture. He uses Adam and Eve. Notice what he says here. He says here, um, and he says uh, for explaining, Adam was first created, then Eve. It's the order of creation. First of all, and then notice what he says. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. He's saying, hey, it was the woman. Who so that's why Paul does not allow women in church leadership we see that it's very clear uh there is a headship that god has ordained it doesn't make you any less there are proper roles we have christ who submitted to the father right uh he uh, uh, he, he submitted to the father proper roles but yet equal right we have these roles here and notice what it says. But a woman shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. Well, there's some churches that say, wow, women's woman's going to be saved. The word means saved uh, by childbearing. No, that's not true. She's going to be delivered, saved from the temptation of being in the wrong place and being deceived by be, trying to be a leader by being in her right place by raising children. And being faithful and in the faith, right? That's, you're going to be delivered. You're going to be delivered from that temptation if you're in your right role, ladies. That's what he's saying. Okay, so that's the first little principle. Nehemiah uh, did not appoint women. He appointed men here. And we see that in the New Testament. Uh, but also here, he knew them. The first one here is, I put Hananiah, my brother, Han- Hanani, my brother. Now you think this might be nepotism, right? You see nepotism throughout churches, right? Maybe good, maybe bad. Uh, nepotism, what's that? It's uh, putting a relative in a position, whatever it might be, giving them a relative, a son, a daughter, or whatever it might be, a uh, relative, a special position, right? Because of their their blood relationship, right? Well, I don't think so. I think you might, you might remember that Hanani was the one who came and informed them of the Jews' situation. He was a man who was faithful. He was one that had left and gone with Ezra, as I see, not the first one, but with Ezra, and had gone to serve the Lord. And he was in Jerusalem, thousands of miles away from Persian Empire. A very difficult thing, right? And he came back with a report, and in his report we will see that he was grieved, in a sense, as he shared it, over the state of Jerusalem, the walls and the gates, and also he reported that the people were very much downcast, that it was not good. So he, he was a good, faithful person to Nehemiah. He gave good reports. He had the right heart. And Nehemiah obviously knew him, right? He obviously knew him. And then we got, uh, and actually, I'll read this first, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Turn back there. It's back there where we see him. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, that's him, right? One of my brothers and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity in about Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there is province who survived and kept it, is in great distress and reproach. And he goes on to talk about the gates and the walls, right? And that's what caused Nehemiah to really be on his knees in, 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 in mourning and then prayer, right? But not only did he know his brother, obviously, you know, we know our relatives pretty well, and if they're qualified, you know them pretty well, right? You know, hey, okay, they are following the Lord, uh, they're qualified, he you knew them, right? He also knew this other guy, evidently. I put Hananiah, my brother, back in our passage, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. Two guys. Um, the other guy, he was the commander of the fortress. You go, what's that? The commander of the fortress? That sounds pretty big. Um, well, the term fortress can speak of citadel or palace. So, evidently, this guy had a high position. He was the commander. Nehemiah knew him, he was the governor. Obviously, he had probably done well, and he appointed him. He knew him. Uh, Sadly, you see in church people who maybe come for a couple months, and all of a sudden they're a deacon. Now, that's a recognized servant, or they're appointed as others. I hear these things. I go, wait a second. How can you possibly know this person? How can you know them? How can can they be tested uh, in such a short time? You need to know them. He understood them. He knew them. He understood them and knew them. We see that here. Uh, And also we see in the New Testament that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 imply that you have observed their character. You've had time to see a Christ-like character, you see that. Uh, And we also know certainly there are not to be new converts, uh, 1 Timothy 3.8, we know that also, right? So the principles, you need to know uh, who you're appointing, you need to know them, right? Pretty straightforward, right? Uh, secondly, notice uh, uh, from Hannah, Hanani's example, Nehemiah appointed those concerned for the Lord's name and his people. Clearly, when I read chapter 1, we see Nehemiah's brother, he had a concern for the spiritual welfare of God's people and God's name. And God's name. You appoint people who care about the Lord and care about God's people. They have a concern for God's name. They have a concern for God's name. Leaders need to be concerned about his people and the Lord's name. We have a principle in 3 John. Uh, you can turn to 3 John. It's kind of it's a tertiary principle. It's not the main principle, but it's part of it. We'll see. 3 John, near the end, near Revelation, just a little shorter there. Jude, after that, Jude, and then Revelation. 3 John. I won't read the whole thing, but uh, 3 John, verse 6. And they bear witness, that's the, the church, Of your love before the church, and that you do well to send them, or that's to do well to send them on their way in a manner of God. Now, speaking of these people that came, they were they were like missionaries in a sense, okay? And he's saying, hey, treat them well. And I'm going to look at look at verse seven. For they went out for the sake of the name. They went to serve the Lord. They went out for the sake of the name. And notice this: accepting nothing from the Gentiles. This is a principle. No fireworks stands to raise money for Christ. Uh, no uh, uh, outdoor uh, things, barbecue and getting money for Christ. For the sake of the name for the Lord Jesus, they didn't accept money from nonbelievers. And they are praised for that. They are praised for that. It's a principle here. For God's name, they had a sense of, of his name not being dragged. His name gets dragged through the mud with the nonbelievers. This church needs our cash, man. They're having a problem. Whatever it might be, you know, you see that. You see that nonbelievers uh, supporting the, the work of the church. Doesn't need to be that way. Shouldn't be that way. And notice what he says here. Uh, therefore, we ought to support such men that we would be fellow workers with them in the truth. Little principle, they went for the sake of the name. And they didn't want uh, the money from the Gentiles, right? And therefore, they should be supported. Okay, that's one little illustration there. We also know when the Apostle Paul addressed the Romans concerning non-believing Jews in chapter 2, he, he quotes Isaiah 52 saying that God is blasphemed by the Gentiles because of this, these Jews' self-righteous, unbelieving actions. They claim the name of Yahweh, but yet they don't know him, and his name is blasphemed. Uh, people who love the Lord are concerned about God's name. They're concerned about his reputation, okay? Concerned about his reputation. And also he had a concern for the people. He saw they were greatly distressed. And he relayed that in a way that moved Nehemiah, obviously. Obviously we have the summary of that in chapter 1. We know that the hirelings in the church, they are for themselves. They're for the money. They're for the, the prestige. They're hirelings. And when the wolf comes, they run away. Uh, They do not have the heart of Christ. They have no true concern for the church, John 10. But true uh, shepherds, those who God has to lead, have a concern for the flock because Jesus is moving their heart to be concerned like he is. Those who have a heart of Christ, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. 1 Peter 5, 2 Godly leaders are concerned with the spiritual state of his children. Hebrews chapter 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls. They they protect you with the word of God, feed you and protect you from threats, right? They're concerned. So Nehemiah appointed those who had a concern, a concern for the people that they would be over. Spiritually speaking. Now notice, uh, Nehemiah also appointed those who could do the job, I believe. Look at uh, verse 2 again, back in Nehemiah 7. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. He's the commander of the palace. He has proven himself as a leader in this sense, right? He puts him in charge. Now, don't don't get me wrong here. Uh, We need to recognize that just because someone is good in business, you don't go out like these churches and say, hey, this is a really good businessman. Let's put him as a leader. No, they have to be godly. But not only do they mean to be godly, they need to actually be able to do the task. Uh, 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, how can someone who can't manage his own household manage the church of God? You've got to be able to do the task. You've got to be able to do the task. And this guy he appointed was the commander. The commander, right? First Timothy 3, I'll read this for you. He must be one who manages his own household while keeping his children under control with all dignity. Uh, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Got to be able to do it. Got to be qualified in a sense, have the ability to do it. But that doesn't mean you just take somebody who's the commander of something and put them in that position. They need to be godly as we have seen but they need to be able to do it too, right? need to be qualified. And then notice, this is the most important thing here that uh, that we have. And this is the character of this second man, which I believe is the character of his brother also, it's implied. Uh, notice what he says here. They put them in charge of Jerusalem, middle of verse 2, for he was a faithful man, that's Hanani, uh, Hanani, excuse me, for he was a faithful man and feared God. More than many. Hey, it's fine to appoint the guy who's a really good businessman, but he better be a faithful man and fear God more than many, right? He better be truly a Christ like person, right? Right? Um, This is an amazing statement. This amazing testimony of this man. He's a faithful man who feared God more than many. That means it was evident to uh, Nehemiah, his Faithfulness, it was evident to Nehemiah his fear of the Lord that it was more than many. Now, folks, faithfulness speaks of trustworthiness, um, it is required of servants of the Lord. It's required of servants. We are required to be faithful, by the way, in what God has called us to do. We're going to see we're required to be faithful as husbands and wives, to obey our master in regards to his commands in regards to our wives and our husbands. We're to be faithful at our work, to obey our master in regards to his commands at work. We're to be faithful in regards to our master in regards to his commands in the body of Christ. We're to be faithful. It's required. You see, God tells us to do something in his word. He entrusts you with a gift or talent. Uh, He expects you to be faithful, and we do that by his power and strength, by his power and strength. Um, And I believe if you are faithful or not, you know it. I believe you know it. I believe you know if you've been faithful in what God has called you or if you've been unfaithful in that. Do you remember the parable the Lord gave and shared in Matthew 24 Matthew 24, he says, who, verse 25, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of the household and to give them bread in his proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He's doing the master's will. Faithful slaves do what the master says. What our master, it's not me telling you what to do. It's not you telling what to me to do. It's what God tells us in his word we are to do. And we are either faithful to that or we are not faithful. Or we might be, uh, as we'll see, we might be not as faithful as some, maybe more faithful than others. The reality is we are called to be faithful. Matthew 25, what does the Lord tell the faithful slaves? Well done, thou good and faithful servant faithful we understand faithfulness on a human level you ask someone to do something they say they're going to do it and they don't do it it's not faithful now we got to recognize that sometimes as believers god will lead us through circumstances to not accomplish what we might have said we're going to do the apostle paul an example second corinthians chapter two he had said he was going to come back and visit them but god was prompting in his heart to wait because of their state and so he was accused of not being faithful. But Paul was still faithful, as we're going to see. So we've got to be careful that we're not the judges of everyone else's faithfulness. It should be evident to us. It should shine towards us, right? In a sense, as we'll say. But here, notice uh, uh, the body of Christ. We should be faithful for Christians. Paul would speak of those in Ephesus as faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.1. He speaks of this really great guy, Tychicus. Uh, who is a beloved and faithful minister of the Lord, Ephesians 6.21. He would address those in Colossae as the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, Colossians 1.2. He would speak of Epaphras as a beloved uh, fellow bondservant who who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. The Apostle Paul would tell people to do stuff. Epaphras do this, and Epaphras was faithful in those things. He was serving Christ. He was serving Christ. He was faithful. Tychicus is mentioned again in Colossians 4, 7, our brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord. Paul would speak of, or Peter would speak of Silvanus, that's Silas, as our faithful brother, for so I regard him. For so I regard him, 1 Peter 5, verse 12. In, chapters, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, we see Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. He's faithful. Uh, We know the Apostle Paul said the Lord considered him faithful, putting him into service. 1 Timothy 1.12. Maybe God doesn't put you into service because he knows you're not faithful, and you're going to need to do some confessing, and then God will use you. Every day is a new day with the Lord. His mercies are new. Be forgiven. Move forward. Be faithful, right? Uh, Speaking of women deacons, now this is not leadership. This is recognized servants, not leadership. They're not exercising an authority he says they are to be faithful in all things first timothy 3:11 faithful in all things and folks we should be able to recognize a faithful man notice what uh, paul tells timothy in second timothy chapter 2 verse 2 and i'll read this for you you can turn her to second 2 timothy 2:2 2, 2. he says and the things which you have heard uh, from me in the presence of many witnesses that's the word of god he says, entrust this to faithful men. Faithful men who will uh, be able to teach others also. Entrust it, Timothy. Faithful men. They've got to be faithful. You've got to be able to see it. got to see it. And 1 Corinthians 4 reveals that just specifically with Paul in the word, but it, it talks of principle that we see that servants of Christ must be faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or the word faithful, be found faithful. I'm a steward of the word. I better be sharing it with you. I better be sharing it every time. I better be faithful to the Lord's calling to me. I better be faithful to trust him and not rely on my own strength. I better be faithful to allow him to do it through me, what he's called me to do what he's called me to do, and he's called you also uh, to do his will, to serve him, to obey him. And over many years, uh, teaching in the body of Christ, I've seen very few faithful people, really faithful people. Uh, Praise the Lord, we have faithful people here, Um, but that's, uh, you know if you're faithful or not. You know if you are. You know if you are. So how about you? Uh, If the Lord was to make a comment about you and his word, would he say, so-and-so, faithful servant faithful servant what he say that what he say that what he say well done thou good and faithful servant well if it's not the case and you know it then there's some confessing that needs to be done and then when you're right with the lord as you walk with him you will be faithful because we're faithful because he's faithful and he will enable you to do what he calls you to do To be faithful at work and trusting him. To be faithful in your marriages and relying on him and obeying him. We're not perfect in any of those things. We make mistakes. To be faithful in the body of Christ by obeying him. To be faithful as we go into the world. So then, he appointed a man who was a faithful man. You know what? Leaders should never be appointed if they're not faithful. They need to be faithful. Faithful in their walk with the Lord. Faithful. Faithful. And notice there's another statement he makes about him. Back in our passage, seven one, he says here, uh, he feared God more than many. That's an awesome statement. Here is no, have you ever met someone who fears God more than many? That's an awesome statement. Well, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to fear God? The term fear, Yare, speaks of a reverence for God, which is manifest in obedience and turning from sin to God. Uh, Exodus 20.20 20, Uh, Moses says uh, to the people, they were all shaking in their boots. God said, come on up. And they said, no, we're not going to go there. This is scaring us. Okay, so they're fearing. He says, do not be afraid, or Yahweh, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain on you so that you may not sin. When our heart is focused on the Lord and walking with him, there's a fear there that we're not going to go out and just sin blatantly, right? It's when God is out of our minds, We're not thinking of him, we just go sin, 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 right? This man feared more than others. To fear God, one writes, it means to acknowledge his superiority over man, recognize his deity, and thus respond in awe, worship, humility, trust, and obedience. In Psalm 86, we've seen this uh, before, Uh, David says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, Uh, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Put my heart together. Pull apart all the divisions in there and unite it to fear your name. Help me do that. You see, uh, David desired to reverence God, to be conscious of him and his actions. To be conscious of God in your actions. You're getting ready to, to, to be irritated, you're getting ready to yell at somebody, you're getting ready to worry. Be conscious of God in your actions. Conscious of God in your actions, right? God is a good God. He'll deliver you, and when we fail, he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. He's such a good God. Who is a God like thee that forgives? Who is a God like that? That's our God, right? Praise the Lord. And so uh, we have this idea of fear. We're to conduct our lives in fear. We saw that 1 Peter 1.17, read it earlier. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We saw it because of the price that was paid, right? Right? And Jesus Christ is, is, is exalted now, having humbled himself. Uh, therefore, we're to work it out with fear and trembling, Right? Uh, what does David say in Psalm 34? You can turn there. We get a little lesson on the fear of the Lord, a little lesson. He's going to say, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Come on. Come on and listen. First, he's going to exhort it. Psalm 34, and I wish we could have time for the whole psalm. This is a long sermon, so uh, hopefully you had your, your Wheaties this morning. Uh, we'll get out for lunch later. But uh, uh, 34, verse 9. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those, to those who fear him, there is no want. That's great. You got want? Maybe fear is kind of left to you, right? Right? Um, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, and those are the biggest, those are the like the king of beasts, right? Um, but they who seek the Lord, that's part of fearing, by the way. Seek the Lord, shall not be in want of any good thing. You're seeking him, you're focused on him. Come, you children, listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you. Here, I'm going to teach you a lesson on it. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? The good life in Christ, right? Who desires that? Here you go. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from it. This is teaching the fear of the Lord, turning from these things, right? And do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Get away from the conflict and seek peace and pursue it, right? Um, and there's a reason why. Because God is attentive to you if you're fearing him. And his ear listens to your prayer. But his face is against you if you are doing your own thing. Notice that this is really the key to the fear of the Lord. He's on my side. If I trust him, right? He's going to help me. He's a good God. Look at this. It says here, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. For he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than many. Those are the people you want leading. Those are the people I want leading. Those are the people, as I pray for people of God, to raise up leaders in this church. That's what I'm looking for, to see that. Don't go out and try to do it on the outside. It's what God does. What God does, it's what God does. Tremendous statement. So, do you fear God? Do you fear God more than many? Well, maybe we need to confess we have had a lack of fear. God's good. Be forgiven. Keep Him on your heart. Keep Him on your heart. His ears are attentive to your prayer. The situation you're tempted to have conflict about. If you go to Him, He'll help you. Instead, right? Whatever it might be, tempted to worry. Whatever it might be. So then, notice we have the type of leaders, and then notice Nehemiah now back to our passage. He charges them. He gives them some instructions. This is five days before uh, the what we're going to see in chapter eight. Then I said to them, this is verse three. Uh, this is after he appointed them. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, uh, while they are standing and while they are standing guard. Let them be shut and bolt the doors. Hey. Watch it, Riley. You guys are in charge. Don't let the gatekeepers do it any other way than this. Do it this way. I, want it, I don't want them open till the sun's hot. Don't have them open early, right? They didn't open up at 6 a.m. here, right? <laughs> they, it was when the sun was hot. So he gives them that. And then notice what he says, middle of verse 3. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is very wise uh, leadership here. Uh, each at his own post, each in front of his own house. Okay, you've got guards. If they're guarding their own house, they're going to do a better job, I think, right? They're guarding their own houses, okay? So appoint guards. And so with that, uh, we have some wonderful principles about uh, leadership from this portion. But we're going to see that God prompts his leaders uh, also to, to do his will, and then he affirms it with the word of God. He prompts them to do things, and he affirms it with the word of God. Look here, verse 4, we read it earlier. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So we got to Jerusalem, got the walls fixed, got the guards set, got the leaders, got everything, but there's not a lot of people in there. Okay, and it says, then, verse 5, God put into my heart. Then, there's a connection. The city didn't have anybody in it. Then, God put in my heart. To do what? Assemble the nobles that's the, uh, royal, the royals in the Jewish line, or the Judah line of Judah. The officials, those are kind of leaders, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. The implication is we need to know who's here to get people into Jerusalem. It's really the implication. But as we're going to see, after we have this genealogy that he sees here that God affirms, we're then going to see that they need to be spiritually rebuilt first. They need to be restored, spiritually built up, rebuilt Rebuilt. So then, uh, again, Nehemiah chapter 11 points to that fact about putting people in Jerusalem, right? But there's a gap in between that helps us understand the flow of Nehemiah. So he calls to assemble them by genealogy. We read through those genealogies, didn't we? The genealogy from Ezra, right? Uh, Those who came out, uh, Cyrus's uh, 538 BC, Cyrus's uh, decree. Uh, They came to rebuild the temple, right? There were uh, 42,380, and I will not read those again, okay? All right. Um, There was, uh, and then there were, that's out of millions, right? And then there were servants and singers and horses and mules, verse 66 through 69. (coughs) And then we have this statement that I read earlier, which I think could be speaking of Nehemiah, because it adds into what Ezra had had, which was word for word before Completely accurate, but here it seems to add in the gifts that maybe Nehemiah and those had added to it, and some from among the heads of the fathers of households, this is verse seventy households gave to the work to the work the governor gave to the treasury one thousand gold drachmas, fifty basins, five hundred thirty priestly garments, and some of the heads of the father 's households gave to the treasury of the work twenty thousand gold drachmas. 2,200 silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. And again, I shared the term drachma here actually sh- should be probably translated daric. That's a better translation. The word's only used here, basically, and in, and in Ezra. So it's, it's basically a word that speaks of a Persian gold coin. A Persian gold coin at that time, and the, and the value of that was approximately uh, the wage of a hired uh, mercenary for one month. That's what, that, that's, that's what it says in the history. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the history books say. And so then it's money for the work. Are you generous for the work of God? We've got a lot of work going on here. I'll tell you that right now. Or has God put on your heart to be generous for that? You know, I'm not asking for money. Uh, God just works in hearts, and he uses those hearts who are submitted to do his work. And he rewards them. You can't outgive God. You can read. We'll get to Second Corinthians chapter nine. You know, with the right heart, the right heart. So we see gracious gifts for the work of God. Gracious gifts for the work of God. And then we have the statement in seventy-three. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people of the temple at, at, at all Israel lived in their cities. Same thing for Mesrah, But it, how does it work in our passage? They're all in the cities. Like from the genealogy, they're not in Jerusalem. There's very few in Jerusalem. That's really what's going on. And that's the move in this book to the next chapter and the chapters after that up to chapter 11, where they need to have some spiritual work done on them, just like the walls, just like the walls. And then the last part here, at end of 73, we'll see this in our next passage uh, next time because this is really the beginning of chapter 8, I believe. This is not in Ezra. It says, and when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Seventh month, five days later from the wall being completed, and we're gonna see that the events of chapter eight happen in the seventh month. Happened in the seventh month. Okay. So then we're gonna see as we look at that that the work of God involves leaders and their spiritual and, and with that there's gonna be spiritual restoration and rebuilding. Uh through the word of God preached, the conviction and confession of sin, and a commitment to obey. The commitment to obey comes after the hardest right. After the hardest right. So, we've seen some principles about leadership today. Um, and really, the main points can be applied to us faithfulness and fearing God, really, right? They can. And now there's some of you here who don't fear the Lord at all. He is not on your mind at all when you do stuff. You just live your life. God says in his word for non-believers, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear. You don't fear eternity. You don't fear God's punishment. You don't fear the reality that there's judgment and that you won't get away with anything you're doing, that there's the lake of fire, eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. But God also says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can have eternal life if you acknowledge your sin and believe in Jesus, God who took in human flesh and died on the cross and rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, save me. And guess what? Because of forgiveness, you will fear God. Psalm 130, uh, there's forgiveness in thee that thou mayest be feared. You're going to have a changed relationship with the living God because you've been forgiven. Well, what about us who are believers? Um, Are you faithful? Why or why not? Are you faithful in the things God has called you to do? Your family, your work, the church? Are you faithful? Not to me or not to someone else. Are you faithful to the Lord's commands for you in these spheres? Are you faithful? Why or why not? Secondly, are you one who fears God? Is the Lord on your heart? You know, if the Lord's on your heart, you're fearing him. You're thinking about him, right? When the Lord's on your heart, you, you, you don't do things that you would do when you're not thinking about him, right? Right? And so we see by a great example a man who was a faithful man and he feared God more than others, greatly more than others. Could that be said of us? I pray it is as we grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this wonderful book. It is so instructive for us. And Lord, we do fail. We know that so well that uh, at times we're not faithful and at times we don't fear you like we should. Lord, unite our hearts to fear you. Teach us to fear you, to trust you, to walk with you, to be faithful to your commands, to have them running in our hearts, your good word your good word, and how we're to treat one another, your good word, how we're to serve, your good word. Help us to fear you. Lord, thank you for these examples, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And the only way we can do these is through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and by his Spirit. John, would you...